Good afternoon, everyone. Following the shocking, unexpected vote in Great Britain to leave the EU, what's in store for Britain, for Europe, and the rest of the world, including the United States? What few people realize is that, amazingly, the exit of Britain from the EU and a far-reaching metamorphosis in the political structure of Europe are both presaged in Bible prophecy. Great Britain, in case you missed it, voted June 23, 2016 in a referendum to leave the European Union, which it had joined in 1973. It was widely believed that the referendum would fail, yet the vote to leave prevailed 52% to 48%. Cited as reasons for the breakaway were out-of-control immigration, coupled with a fear of increasing terrorism tied to immigration, and a European economic crisis. A number of public figures, including George Soros, Donald Trump, and many politicians in Europe, have predicted that the exit of Britain is the beginning of the disintegration of the European Union. Where are the current events that are rapidly changing the globe economically, politically, and demographically heading? Politicians, pundits, theologians, academics, and others can only guess. But unless they understand correctly what the prophecies of the Bible reveal, they really don't know the answers. However, Bible prophecy not only foretells earth-shaking events which are now unfolding, but those prophecies tell us why these changes are occurring, and Bible prophecy tells us where they will ultimately lead. In today's sermon, I will discuss how Bible prophecy presages the exit of Britain from the EU and what it portends for the future. Actually, this will be part one of a two-part sermon on this subject. Few people in our hedonistic, God-defying world understand the keys to Bible prophecy that show us where the world is headed and why. But you can know. And you should know what is in store for Britain, for the United States, and other nations in the world in the relatively near future. A vital key to understanding Bible prophecy is the identity of Israel among the nations of today. Many prophecies of the Old Testament are dual. That is, they have a Dual, uh, dual application, they have a dual fulfillment, often a, and, and even sometimes more than one or more than two uh, fulfillments, but often there were prophecies that were fulfilled in part in ancient times and are yet to be fulfilled again more completely in the future or perhaps have been fulfilled more than once 
a number of prophecies were addressed primarily, if not exclusively, to Israel in the latter days. That is, they were written, if not uh, primarily or exclusively, they were written primarily for our time today. And some other nations are also addressed in prophecies that are applicable to the latter days as well. The vast majority of the prophecies of the Bible pertain to events that have occurred recently or that are unfolding now or that will unfold in the relatively near future. At the end of this age and the ushering in of a completely new and different age to come. Those who think the Israel of the Bible pertains only to the tiny nation-state of Israel, the Israel of the Jews, are completely wrong. The Bible actually discusses major nations, nations that we are familiar with, including the United States, Britain, Germany, Russia, and other nations are discussed in the Bible, and a great deal is revealed about the course of events that will affect those nations, either affect them collectively or individually. And the fulfillment of major prophecies concerning those nations are occurring now or will be occurring in the near future. If you have not studied the Bible much, you may not be familiar with some of the figures in the Bible. One of the major figures in the Bible in the Old Testament, it's not just in the Old Testament, actually his name is mentioned throughout the Bible in many places, and that was a man named Jacob. His name was also Israel, as it was changed later on in his life by God from Jacob to Israel. Jacob uttered a prophecy to his sons toward the end of his life concerning what would become of them in the latter days, in the last days. As it says in Genesis 49, verse 1, Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what will befall you in the last days. And so virtually all of chapter 49 of Genesis consists of a prophecy that is directed to the 12 sons or 12 tribes of Israel. And those prophecies specifically have to do with what would befall them in the last days, at the end of this age, or near the end of this age. Various places in the Bible, God warns of disaster to befall the people of Israel in the latter days, not just Israel, but other nations as well. In Deuteronomy 4, in verse 30, we read, God speaking to Israel, 
and telling them when you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice. So here in this verse, it's talking about distress, catastrophe coming upon the people of Israel in the latter days prior to them repenting and turning to God. Moses uttered a similar warning to Israel toward the end of his life, Deuteronomy 31 and verse 29. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Daniel wrote of the time of the end of the age in Daniel 12, verse 1, And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. Going on in verse 8 of Daniel 12, Daniel wrote, Although I heard, I did not understand. He was talking about the prophecies and the, and the things that he had been told by angelic beings that were sent by God to deliver a message through him. And he goes on to say, Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. The words were sealed up till the time of the end, and they were not to be, the full meaning was not to be revealed to, till the time of the end. And those prophecies have directly to do with things that will happen at the end of this age. To understand what is now happening in the world, and especially the precipitous decline in the power and influence of Great Britain and the United States, we need to go back in history to almost 4,000 years ago. Because it is in history that we will find our roots and we will find where we came from. And we will also find information about who we are and where we are headed. God made a series of promises to a man named Abraham. Actually, his name was Abram. At first, later, it was changed to Abraham. Abraham was a rare man among men who proved faithful to God in the midst of an evil world. Genesis 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now notice here that among the things that God said to Abram was that if he obeyed him, and this was a conditional promise at this point, he said if he did what he told him to do, then he would make of him a great nation. 
He's talking about physical descendants. And he's talking about greatness, power, the things that make a nation great on this earth. In Genesis 15, verse 5, God brought Abram outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So God told Abram that his descendants would be innumerable for, for multitude as the stars of heaven are innumerable. In Genesis 17 and verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And that is one way in which the word Abraham could be stated in English as far as its meaning is concerned, father of multitudes or father, father of many nations. In verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. Notice it was not just a single nation, but nations that would come out of the loins of Abraham and kings, he said, would come from you and I will establish my covenant be between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. In Genesis 22, after God had tested Abraham again in a very serious manner and found Abraham faithful, we read this, Genesis 22 and verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. By the way, this angel of the Lord is actually God himself speaking to Abraham in the person of the one that we know as Jesus Christ. And he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your, or it could be translated, gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So notice again, that God promised to Abraham descendants innumerable for multitude as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashore are, cannot be numbered. 
and that these nations would be powerful nations that would possess the gates of their enemies. And in his descendants would all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, the promise was not only a promise of grace to be extended through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the singular seed or descendant through whom all the nations were to be blessed, but the promise was also to include physical descendants of Abraham to be an innumerable multitude, and they, as we said, were to possess the gates of their enemies. The blessing that God had given to Abraham was to be passed down as a birthright to his descendants, to his physical descendants. The problem was that Abraham's wife was barren. Abraham was quite old by this time, and he'd had no children. In fact, he was around 100 years old, and his wife, I believe, was about 90. And Abraham had tried to solve the dilemma by siring a son through Hagar, his wife's handmaid, and Ishmael was born through that effort. But it was not God's intention to pass the promises of the covenant down through Ishmael, the son of the handmaid of Sarah. And this had happened uh, somewhat prior to Abraham becoming 99 or 100 years old. And Regarding the future nation that was to spring from Ishmael, the angel of the eternal said to Hagar, this is in Genesis chapter 16, verse 12, he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him, and she, he shall dwell to the east of his brethren, as it should be translated. And in the Kyle and Delich commentary, coming, commenting on this verse, it says, in, in relation to the statement, your, his hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him. Kyle and Delich says, describe most truly the incessant state of feud in which the Ishmaelites live with one another and with their neighbors. Now, the Ishmaelites, Ishmael had 12 sons, and they in turn had families. And the people descended from the Ishmaelites are generally the people that we know as Arabs today. Not that all people that are necessarily designated as Arabs are from the, uh, the, the tribes of Ishmael, but the vast majority are, and they freely admit that. The Arabs do, that they are descendants of Ishmael. And historically, the Arab tribes have had a very difficult time getting along with one another. 
and have often been at war with other peoples. Now you could say that might apply to just about any group of people on the face of the earth, and it does to one degree or another. But the Arabs in particular have had a very difficult time becoming united and staying united for any extended period of time and have often been at odds at war with other peoples as they are today. This prophecy applies directly in the latter uh, in the latter days, the days that we're living in today. And we see infighting among the various tribes, the Middle East, constantly at one another's throats, killing one another, attacking one another, bombing, not only attacking each other, but now in today's political climate and in military situation and so forth, various groups from among the Arabs and others in the Middle East are attacking people all over the world, bombing airports, bombing buildings, bombing airplanes, killing people indiscriminately, and in a sense have declared war on the entire world. Now, that doesn't mean that we should hate Arabs or that Arabs cannot be as peaceful and loving as anyone else. Many Arabs are peaceful and are not trying to kill other people. But on the other hand, many are as well. And Arabs have the same chance for repentance and salvation as anyone else. So we should not just decide that we're going to hate Arabs, but it is a fact of history that confirms what the Bible said would be characteristic of a people. Now, every, every nation has its problems, and so, as I said, we should not use that as a pretext for hatred. In Genesis 17 and verse 13, or excuse me, verse 15, God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Now this was after Ishmael had been born of the handmaid of Sarah, Hagar. And so God told Abraham that I will bless her, give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. 
Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Now we see here in what God told Abraham that Ishmael's descendants were to become a great nation. But the birthright nations were to be greater and they were to dwell to the east of their brethren. As we read earlier, that is, they were to dwell east of Isaac's descendants who had the birthright, and so they have historically. And they still do for the most part today. The birthright was passed down through Isaac to his son Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. Now this, these promises that were to be passed down as a birthright, generally the birthright was given to the eldest son. And when Jacob was born, he was a twin. And Esau, his brother, actually was born before he was. Esau was the firstborn. And as the firstborn, the birthright was his. But he despised the birthright, and he sold it to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. By intrigue, Jacob later acquired the blessing of his father, Isaac, which accompanied the birthright. He disguised himself impersonating his brother Esau to obtain the blessing by deceit. And so we read in Genesis 27, beginning with verse 26, And his father Isaac said to him, speaking to Jacob, Come near, me, uh, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near, he came near disguised as Esau, because Isaac thought he was talking to Esau. And kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his raiment and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Eternal has blessed. Therefore God gave you of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Or as it says in Fenton's translation, increase in possession. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone that curses you and blessed be he that blesses, uh, that blesses you. So here's a blessing that includes a variety of physical blessings such as abundant crops and the things that are produced by the earth, 
and also power over other peoples. Let nations bow down to you and be Lord over your brethren. And cursed be those who curse you, blessed be those who bless you. This is the blessing that was passed on to Jacob. And the descendants of Jacob also were to be an innumerable multitude as the sand of the seashore. Jacob said to God in, in reminding him of this, in Genesis 32 and verse 12, Jacob said to God, For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob had 12 sons. The firstborn son was named Reuben. Reuben, however, forfeited his right to the status of firstborn, as related in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It tells us, now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of uh, the, uh, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, it was uh, a genealogy here that was being discussed. For he was the firstborn, but forasmuch as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. And the genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birth, birthright. So that he, Reuben, is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright, for Judah prevailed above his brethren, and of him came the chief ruler, but the birthright was Joseph's. So the birthright promise, the, the promises that we've been reading about here, most of them, especially those having to do with physical blessings and nationhood, were passed on not to Reuben, the firstborn, but rather to Joseph, who was actually the first son to be born to Jacob of his second wife, Rachel. The vast majority of professing Christians assume that when the Bible refers to Israelites, it is referring to the Jews. They've been misled by theologians and ministers into believing a lie which blinds them to the truth about much of what the Bible teaches, especially concerning prophetic events which are now unfolding and which are likely to profoundly affect the lives of many people who are now living. The truth is, all the descendants of Jacob or Israel are Israelites, physically speaking. All the descendants of Jacob or Israel are Israelites. All Jews are Israelites. But the fact is that most Israelites are not Jews. Most Israelites are not Jews. And they're not referred to as Jews in, anywhere in the Bible. Where biblical prophecy refers to Israel, it is often referring to others instead of or in some cases, 
in addition to the Jews. The Jews were of the tribe of Judah to begin with. That's where the name Jew, Jew is just a short form of Judah, the name of one of the sons of Jacob. And they were a strong and powerful tribe and a leading tribe among the tribes that were settled to the southern part of the land of Canaan when God brought them into Israel and later on the nation of Judah was established we'll get into that a little bit in more detail later but it was the people of the southern nation the nation that was called Judah the nation that is called Judah in the Bible those are who the Jews are descended from. But there were other tribes, and Israel had 12 sons, and those other tribes, most of them, are not referred to as Jews. And they are referred to, however, as Israelites in prophecy, and most of those prophecies are not applicable exclusively or even primarily to the Jews or the nation of the nation that is called Israel, which today, which is a Jewish nation. The birthright promises of national power and greatness were not passed down through the Jews, but they were passed down through the descendants of Joseph. As we just read, the birthright was Joseph's. Now the scepter, we're told in Genesis 49, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah. Scepter is a symbol of royal power, royal authority. And the promises which the Bible terms the birthright have not been understood even by most theologians. Few have noticed that God made any promises to Abraham other than the scepter and eventual salvation through Jesus Christ. The birthright was passed on to Abraham's heirs through Joseph, and those promises had to do with physical blessings to be received by the physical descendants of Israel and the sons of Joseph in particular. To Judah was given the portion of the promise relating to rulership that was to be passed down through the house of David eventually and ultimately was to be fulfilled in the Messiah, a descendant of the house of David of David and Jesus Christ is a descendant of the tribe of Judah and of, of, of the uh, house of David but we need to understand that the birthright promise did not pass on to the Jews or through the Jews the scepter promise of Christ and of grace was passed on through the Jews as Jesus said salvation is of the Jews and as 
We read in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The promise of grace was handed down through Judah. And the Messiahship came through Judah. But the birthright promises of national greatness and power to be given were to be given to the house of Joseph in the latter days. In Genesis 49, verse 1, as we read earlier, Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. And then we read the things that he said to the various, his various sons concerning their descendants in the last days. In verse 22, in his prophecy concerning Joseph, he said, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. Now think about a fruitful bough and what it would be like to be a fruitful bough or plant, tree, let's say, by a well. What that would mean is that it would be a very well-watered plant and it would produce a lot of fruit. In terms of descendants, that would mean that there would be a massive number of descendants. And it says his branches run over the wall. Picture a vine or a tree by a well with its branches extending over the wall or the, a vine running over the wall. It, it, it uh, implies a people who were very numerous and tended to colonize in places where they had not dwelt before. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength and his and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you. Blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the uttermost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. So here we see a tremendous physical blessings being referred to in a picturesque way. Blessings of the womb, blessings from above, blessings in the earth, and so forth. These promises imply extraordinary material blessings, power, and world greatness. 
God had promised to Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 14, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we're told here that the descendants of Jacob would be spreading out in every direction to the east, north, west, and south. This implies worldwide influence. And so we read in Romans 4, verse 13, for the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, the recipients of these blessings and this, these birthright promises would, uh, is that they would inherit the world. That is, they would not necessarily inherit every square centimeter of the world, but that they would inherit the choice parts of the earth to the north, the south, the east, and the west, and that they would have worldwide power and influence. Near the end of his life, Jacob passed on the birthright blessings to the sons of Joseph to the sons of Joseph. And in, Ex in Genesis 48, Jacob, or Israel, was speaking to Joseph, verse 5, and he said, Now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine, as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. The implication here that he was adopting Ephraim and Manasseh as his sons, and that in terms of the inheritance, that they would displace Reuben and Simeon, who were the first two sons to be born, to Jacob. And... He went on to say in verse 6, Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in the inheritance. So they would be regarded as the first and second in line, sharing between themselves the birthright inheritance. God also inspired Jacob in conferring the momentous birthright to give the greater part of the blessing to the younger of the two sons of Joseph, who was Ephraim. Jacob was blind at the time that he passed this blessing on to the sons of Joseph. So he could not see the two lads before him. Nevertheless, he crossed his hands, as it says in Genesis 48, and Israel, verse 14, and Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly. For Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my father Abraham and Isaac did walk the God which led me 
all my life long this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads, and let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So we see that the name of Israel was to be given first and foremost to the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh together received the right to the name Israel, and it was to become the national name of their descendants. And their descendants were not the Jews. Now, going on, we see Joseph's reaction. He said, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put your right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He, Manasseh, also shall become a people, and he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude or a company of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, And you shall be, shall Israel bless, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. So we see that they were together sharing the birthright and the blessing, but also they each had their individual and respective parts in the blessing, and the greater part was that of Ephraim, who was to become a company of nations. And he would also achieve his greatness first. But Manasseh would also become a great nation. It could also be implied that these descendants of Joseph, the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh, the two tribes that came out of Joseph, would remain together for a time and then eventually separate into their respective inheritances. Manasseh becoming a great nation and Ephraim a still greater company of nations. Neither of these prophecies were fulfilled in ancient times. Neither the prophecy concerning Ephraim or Manasseh or the joint prophecy concerning them was fulfilled in ancient times, even though Ephraim and Manasseh were the leading tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel during the, the period of Israel's sojourn in the land that God had given them in Canaan. After God led the tribes of Israel out of Egypt, having grown to a population of perhaps two or three million, God placed them in the land of Canaan. And there Israel had been throughout its history, as it was in the wilderness, unfaithful to God. 
after the time of Solomon, the nation of Israel, as we mentioned earlier, which consisted of 13 tribes, had been divided into two nations. It was no longer a united kingdom, but it had become divided after Solomon's reign into two nations. Israel was the northern kingdom, and it was called Israel. It is called Israel in the Bible. And that kingdom consisted of ten tribes led by the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. The southern kingdom of Judah, with the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, was the second nation, and that is where the Jews come from. And it is often called Judah in the Bible. Now, occasionally, the Jews are referred to as Israel as well because they were indeed Israelites, but usually where we read about Israel in the Bible, more often than not, it is talking not primarily about the Jews, not exclusively about the Jews, but often it is referring to the northern tribes or to Manasseh and Ephraim, who were given the name Israel. Because of persistent rebellion against God in a series of invasions from about 740 to 720 B.C., the house of Israel was overrun by the Assyrians. The people of Israel were driven out of their own land, out of their homes and cities, and they were carried captive to Assyria on the southern shores of the Caspian Sea and nearby areas. And then they were lost from view as far as most history is concerned. As we read in 2 Kings 17, verse 18, Therefore the Eternal was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. God had removed them out of his sight. They disappeared, so to speak, from view. And that is where for the most part, any record in the Bible of Israel's history is concerned. Now, not entirely, because as I mentioned, there are many prophecies in the Bible about what would happen to Israel. But as far as the specific historical events that were happening at that time, uh, such as we read in the book of Kings and Chronicles and so forth, that's where, the, that's where the record ends. But who was it that was removed? It was not the Jews, 
it was Israel. The kingdom of Judah, the Jews, remained. But Israel became what is popularly known as the lost ten tribes of Israel. Now they weren't really lost in a sense because God knew where they were all the time, but they were lost as far as most people understanding who they were and where they'd come from. They themselves forgot who they were. They forgot their origins. And this included the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Israel had abandoned God to worship idols. They had rejected God's Sabbaths. And they had forgotten who God was, and they had forgotten who they were. As we read in Ezekiel 20, in verse 11, God said, I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. One of the reasons for keeping the Sabbath is so that you can know who God is, who the real God is. But they had refused to keep God's Sabbaths. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Also, I raised my hand in an oath to those in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the Gentiles and disperse them throughout the countries because they had not executed my judgments and had despised my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. So the people of Israel had persisted in rebellion against God and idolatry in transgressing the other commandments and statutes of God, especially the Sabbath. Now, after they were taken into captivity around 720 B.C., after some years, the Assyrian Empire collapsed and the peoples in the area, the Assyrians and many of the Israelites among them, began migrating. The Israelites spread abroad in every direction at first. But as the centuries wore on, the general direction of the movement was west and northwest. And eventually, most of the remnant of the Israelite tribes migrated to western and northwestern Europe and the British Isles. During these centuries, the Israelites were usually not called Israelites. But they were called by other names. Among the names that they were called by were Kimbri, Chimerians, Celts, Gauls, Angles, Saxons, and other names. The movements of these peoples, as well as other peoples, westward over the centuries is not well advertised. But it is fairly well documented historically if one is willing to search out the information. It's not a complete mystery. There are clues and there is information available that document the movements of these people and associate them with 
Israel. Some of the indications of Israelite history or the Israelitish history of people living in the British Isles is preserved in their languages and in some of their traditions. One example is the Hebrew word for covenant is bereath. Now, in Hebrew, only the consonants are written and vowel sounds are absent in written Hebrew, except for the modern day points that are used to indicate the vowel sounds, which was not the case in ancient Hebrew. But the vowels tended to vary. And really, it's, it's not that unusual. It's pretty much the same in English, where often vowels are pronounced differently by people in various areas and so forth of the same English word. But a Hebrew person might well have pronounced the word for covenant, berit or brit. Now, a Hebrew word for man is ish. Thus, the word brit-ish, brit-ish is actually derived from Hebrew. And there are actually a number of words, English words that are derived from Hebrew. But brit-ish in Hebrew would mean covenant man or covenant people. So we might ask, is it mere coincidence that the true covenant people today are called British and they reside in the British Isles? In his prophecy for the latter days, Jacob said, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches are over the wall. As we mentioned, this implies that the descendants of Joseph, the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh, jointly and together were to be a colonizing people in the latter days. And their colonies were to be branching out from the British Isles around the world. Together, Ephraim and Manasseh grew into a multitude and then separated according to Jacob's prophetic utterances. The idea that the people of Britain migrated there after having left Palestine or ancient Israel has been labeled unscientific by some, scoff by some scoffers, citing supposed DNA evidence to the contrary. Now, the idea that looking at someone's DNA and being able to accurately determine from DNA where someone's ancestors may or may not have been centuries ago seems somewhat preposterous, especially when you're talking about groups of people whose ancestors have wandered 
over many parts of the globe, sailed and migrated over many parts of the globe over several thousand years. It seems, in my view, to be much more likely to be accurate, the historical records that are available, the ones that are evaluated properly, than any so-called DNA evidence. Nevertheless, we might ask, is the claim that DNA evidence indicates that the people of the British Isles did not migrate there from the Middle East? Is that claim true? There's an article discussing DNA and other research regarding migration into the British Isles. It can be found on the Internet. The article is titled Genetic History of the British Isles. It's on the Wikipedia Dot org website, the online encyclopedia, Wikipedia. The article states that polymorphemes from human blood indicates, and I'm quoting here, the majority of genetic diversity may best be explained by immigration coming from southeast towards the northwest, or in other words, from the Middle East towards Britain and Ireland. That is the conclusion of these particular researchers. Other research indicates migration from the Iberian Peninsula, which is also documented historically. And research indicates that the oldest, this is another quote, that the oldest surviving male lineages had mostly migrated to Britain from the Balkans and ultimately from the Middle East. End quote. Now that is generally in agreement with the historical and linguistic research as well as biblical evidence. The evidence actually indicates that migrations occurred at different times by various routes, including across North Africa and through the Iberian Peninsula, into the Balkans, and across Europe, and also by sea. And this took place over a period of hundreds of years in various waves of immigration. But we should note that among scholars, there's a great deal of debate concerning the relevance of DNA markers and anyone asserting that scientific evidence proves that the British peoples are not descended from the Israelites is arguing from ignorance, not from factual knowledge. Having migrated into the British Isles and other places, the Manassites eventually began moving further west into what later became the United States in the 17th century. Now you might ask, how can the United States be Manasseh? By the way, the primary evidence that the United States is Manasseh is how its history fits what God prophesied would happen and the uniqueness of these occurrences. But you might ask how the United States could be Manasseh when a large part of the people of the United States have come from many nations. 
not just England, not just the British Isles? Well, the answer is that a large part of Manasseh remained with Ephraim until the separation that occurred, and they came over and founded New England. But, and, and most of the earliest immigrants to the, uh, to the colonies, they were British colonies, most of the immigrants were from Britain, from Great Britain, from, from the British Isles. That's why it's named New England, the, the area up in the northeastern part of the country. But others came from elsewhere in Europe and the Bible prophesied that God would sift the people of Israel through many nations. God said in Amos 9 and verse 9, For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve. Yet the smallest grain shall, uh, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. So the remnant of the Israelites were to be filtered through many nations and in their migrations, the children of Israel, the children of Joseph and others among the Israelites passed through many countries and rubbed shoulders with many other peoples. But Ephraim and much of Manasseh finally immigrated to England together, but many others of Manasseh filtered into and through other nations and did not leave them until they came as immigrants to the United States after the New England colony had become a separate nation. Now that does not mean that everyone who has immigrated into the United States are of the stock of Manasseh, which, would, which is manifestly not true. There are people who have come to this country from all over the world, from virtually every ethnic and racial group you can imagine or that exists in the world. But many of those immigrants, especially the early immigrants of white European lineage or of descent from people in the British Isles are no doubt of Israel and most of them we can conclude are from the tribe of Manasseh. Now, there's no way we can absolutely prove that in terms of looking at individual genealogical records because most of those records do not exist. But we can and do base this conclusion on faith in God's word and its accuracy, but there is enough evidence to support it to make it reasonable, a reasonable conclusion. We should note, however, that the people of Israel have always had among them 
people who were not Israelites. When the people of Israel came out of Egypt, we read about the mixed multitude. Mixed multitude meaning people who were Gentiles primarily, who had come out of Egypt with the people of Israel. Now the mixed multitude was to be subject to the same laws as the people of Israel. They were, in a sense, considered a part of Israel, even though they were not actually Israelites. And then when God placed Israel in the land of promise, there are numerous references in the law and in elsewhere in the Bible to the strangers among the people of Israel, the foreigners who lived among them. And they were expected to, generally speaking, obey the same laws as the people of Israel were. And they shared their fate. They shared in their blessings, and they shared in their fate, whatever befell them. If, if they were cursed, the people who were there with the people of Israel were cursed. If they were blessed, then the Gentiles among them shared in their blessings. And so it is today. If a person listening to this may be of a different nationality or race as far as their ancestry is concerned, then that doesn't mean that they can't share or do not share in the blessings of Israel. If they're living in the United States, then they share in the blessings that God has given to this country, which was primarily descended from Manasseh. Now, the, demo the demographics of this country is rapidly changing, and we'll perhaps discuss that later on, not today, but another day. But it doesn't matter whether a person is of African descent or Asian descent from from peoples in Asia or Africa or Latin America or wherever they might have come from, then they will share in what happens to the country. And so this message is not just for people who are actually physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Manasseh or some other tribe among the Israelites. It's for everyone it's actually for everyone in the world because everyone in the world will be affected by what happens to the United States, to Britain, and countries that will be involved in the events that are to come. In 1800 AD, the United Kingdom and the United States were small and relatively insignificant among the world's nations. The United Kingdom consisted of the British Isles, a small part of India, of Canada, and a few little islands. Canada, of course, was sparsely populated, although it was a huge area, but there weren't very many people there at that time. The United States consisted only of the original 13 colonies and three added states. Neither possessed 
impressive wealth or power. But beginning in around 1800, these two little nations began to sprout and to grow into vast national riches and power such as no people have ever possessed or had ever possessed previously. Soon Britain's empire spread around the world until the sun never set on her possessions. And she eventually acquired possession of one quarter of the earth's land mass in, in her empire. One, one fourth of the world's land mass was a part of the British empire and she was completely dominant over the world's oceans for virtually 100 years in the 19th century. Her possessions included not only Canada, but Australia, South Africa. These were areas that had been peopled largely by individuals of British descent. And they were given dominion status, became free and independent nations in their own right, ruling themselves independently of England, nevertheless loyal to the crown of England and a part of the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth of Nations. So Great Britain became a company of nations, a Commonwealth of Nations. There's never been any empire like it in the world, in the history of the world. No empire is great. No empire is powerful. No empire is rich and influential, as was the British Empire, which came out of nowhere virtually into world dominance in the early part of the 19th century. And by the way, the British did not deliberately set out to build, it, build that empire. It, it virtually fell into their lap, as a number of historians have, have uh, observed. Never in history has anything like it occurred. And meanwhile, the United States grew from a few colonies on the edge of the continent. And over, over the next century, it grew into a continental power and a world power by the end of the century. And then on to become the world's most powerful nation militarily and the world's richest nation in the 20th century. But from the time of their captivity in circa 720 B.C., the peoples of Israel were relatively without influence and great Gentile nations and empires dominated the world scene. Empires such as Egypt, Syria, the New Chaldean or Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greco-Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire and its various resurrections had all dominated the world for thousands of years. God's promises seemed to be in abeyance 
as indeed they were. Remember that Jacob had foretold that what was to become of uh, what was to become of Israel in the latter days, in the latter days or the last days. The promises of national dominance would have to wait for the most part for the latter days, except for a brief period of exceptional power and dominance during the days of David and Solomon, where Israel had become a world power, ancient Israel. But still, the prophecies concerning Ephraim and Manasseh and the sons of Joseph were not fulfilled in the empire that was put together by David and that was ruled over by his son Solomon. God had warned the people of Israel of what would happen if they refused to obey his commandments. And in Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 18, he said, if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. We need to understand the meaning of the seven times or seven prophetic times of this prophecy. A time, as this term is sometimes used in the Bible, is a year in terms of prophecy, a year consisting of 360 days, not 365, but 360 days is a prophetic year in the Bible. And God had told Israel that if they refused to obey him, which they did, that he would punish them seven times. Now, during the time of Israel's punishment, when they were sent into captivity and lost from view, where God removed them from his sight, so to speak, they were deprived of the dominance promised under the birthright. And they were deprived of that birthright, the fulfillment of that birthright promise for seven times. Now, seven times 360 is 2,520. 2,520 days. And for each day of the 2,520 days was a year of punishment during which the children of Israel, and specifically Ephraim and Manasseh, were denied the fulfillment of the birthright promise. This day for a year principle is explained in other prophecies dealing with punishment for the people of Israel. For example, God punished the generation of the Israelites that Moses had led out of Egypt by withholding from them entry into the promised land for 40 years. God punished them on the principle of a year for every day of the 40 days 
that they had spied out the wilderness and then came back with an evil report, as it is described in the Bible. As we read in Numbers 14, verse 34, God said, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days for each day, you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. So from the year approximately 720, 721, the time of the final destruction of the Israelite nation by the Assyrians to the year 1800 A.D. is 2,520 years, or seven times 360. 2,520 years. When that 2,520-year withholding of the birthright had expired, God was faithful and fulfilled his unconditional promise to Abraham, not because of any British or American goodness or superiority or worthiness, but because of God's faithfulness to his promise. Beginning in 1800 approximately, these two birthright people suddenly burst forth and quickly grew into the greatest world powers in all of history. This national wealth and power came not because of our worthiness or because we deserved it or qualified for it. They came because of God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham and to his descendants. Abraham, who was faithful to God, unlike most of our people. So beginning around 1800 A.D., after 2,520 years, God caused the birthright nations and only the birthright nations to become suddenly the recipients of such national wealth, greatness, and power as no nation or empire had ever acquired. Together they, the British and the Americans, of the tribe, the descendants of the tribe of Joseph, came into possession of more than two-thirds or almost three-fourths of all cultivated resources and wealth in the entire world. For a period of 200 years together, Great Britain and the United States have been the dominant powers in the world, and they have possessed the greatest part of the wealth and productive capacity of the world. It sounds incredible, but... All other nations combined shared between them only a little more than a fourth of the world's wealth during much of this period. And that includes nations such as Germany, Italy, Russia, China, and all the other nations of the world. One of the most amazing facts of all history is this sudden skyrocketing from virtual obscurity of two nations, two brother nations, two nations descended from peoples of the same lineage to the most fabulous wealth and economic power ever. 
possessed by any people. Britain became Great Britain, a gigantic, stupendously wealthy commonwealth of nations. And the United States became the greatest single nation in history in terms of wealth and power. More amazing still are the unbelievable, shocking facts of what's happening now. And why we are losing our inheritance perhaps faster than it came. The exit of Great Britain from the European Union, one way or another, either by being forced out or leaving voluntarily, their exit from the European Union is a necessary step in setting the stage for the coming events that will culminate in the greatest series of catastrophes the world has ever seen or could imagine. And setting the stage also finally for the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to save mankind from utter destruction and to establish his world-ruling kingdom of peace on the earth. In a concluding sermon on this subject, we will go into more details about what has happened, what is coming in the future, and why.